0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies.
2: Your guide on
0: the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: You know, energy really is such an an interesting thing. And as uh, we just do a, a quick little coach's corner here, you know, However you want to look at energy, um, it's your ability, it's your power to get stuff done. And everybody has different ways of trying to get their body to work for them. I really am big in believing that everybody's everybody's a little bit different too, right? So you need to probably... Just get into yourself and understand you've got this generator that is you, your body, and its job is to go create the energy for you to fulfill your mission, your purpose. Everybody on this earth, I believe, has something unique to offer. They have a song. They have music that they're supposed to bring to this world. And if you don't have the energy to bring it, I I really, this sounds weird, but I I don't think it matters why you don't have the energy. You still aren't bringing your music. So, we could spend hours explaining why we don't exercise, explaining why we don't sleep, why we don't take care of ourselves. We could explain why we don't um, understand our mental health better. But in the end, if we don't, we don't. So, I, I would, if you're going to work on your energy, could I just suggest spend less time making up the story about it and spend more time just doing it different and figuring it out? Every single time we tell a story or an excuse or a rationale or a reason why we don't take care of our generator, our energy creator, then you're just, you're just facilitating and prolonging the inevitable lack of change. Instead, let's just do something different today. One of the ideas, let's just do one of the ideas that, uh, that Dan had brought up. Go on a walk of gratitude. Get up and, you know, and regularly walk around your office and, and take a break now and then. Get a better meal. Go take a nap. Figure out your mental health. Find out what's going on. You have to crack your code. No one else is here to crack the code for you. And I I bring it up a lot on this show because I see it so much in my own coaching practice. Everybody has an excuse for why they're not getting stuff done. In the end, it doesn't matter why you didn't. Your lack of progress does not equate to the great feelings of being able to get done what you need to get done. So don't spend the time being frustrated by it. Don't spend the time chasing it and beating it up and being mad about it. And don't spend the time talking about how hard it is. Instead, use all of that little bit of energy that you have to go do something different and get something done. So answer the question. What's the most important thing you need to get done this hour that would make the greatest impact in your life? Think about it. What is the most important thing you need to do this hour to have the greatest impact on your life. And just go do that. Oh, I know, but it's so hard. Shh, don't talk about how hard it is. Quit telling me how hard it is. That just reinforces to your subconscious that you're not going to do this. What? So I, I just suggest, instead of just making a huge list of 100 things you need to accomplish today, go ask the question, what's the most important thing I can do right now? For the next half hour to have the greatest impact, and then commit to go do that. And if we could do that right when we get up in the morning, we'll have a victory very early in the morning. And when you have a victory early, it begets more victories throughout the day. What's the most important thing you can do at lunch to have the greatest impact during that time? It might be eat. It might be go sleep under a tree for 20 minutes. It might be go on a gratitude walk. It might be staying at work and finishing so you can leave early and go to your son's graduation. What's the most important thing you can do on your drive home, while you're driving home, listening to this podcast? Ask yourself, what's the most important thing I can do when I get home as a father to have the greatest impact on my family? Don't choose 15 things and don't choose the biggest thing. Choose one thing. Now, when you pull in your driveway, you're still going to notice your lawn needs to be mowed. But if you've also got the idea that I need to walk in that house happy and positive and hug my kids and thank my wife, and then go do that. You know, eat dinner, half hour later, get on your Bermuda shorts and go mow the lawn. Then when you're done with the lawn and you're putting the lawnmower away, what's the most important thing I can do tonight? Now it's 8 o'clock to have the greatest impact on my family. And just start doing it one hour at a time. Start doing it one goal at a time. And ask this question. What's the most important thing you can do today to improve the energy of your life? I need to quit drinking so much caffeine. I need to quit doing this. I need to start doing this. And choose whatever it is and just start it today. It's a simple little idea, right? And the change doesn't have to be dramatic. Just a little here and a little there and a little here and a little there. Pretty simple. You know what, folks? It always is. But simple isn't always what we do, right? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that I I really like to draw a distinction on when I work with companies, and Stephen Covey taught this uh, very well, is... There's a certain time that we need to compete and there's a certain time that we need to cooperate. And competition works incredibly well, but you'll notice that a lot of – and for a lot of people, some of this aggressiveness and aggression that we see in our business and our workplace might be coming from the fact that you've set up systems that are competitive instead of cooperative – so if I work in a company and I'm a salesperson and we have a list, uh, you know, where we compete every week to be the number one salesperson, then what? it's great because you'll get the benefits of competition, right? So I'll work hard. I'll keep trying to, you know, increase my abilities and my skills. That's, that's actually pretty smart, right? Because I want all my sales guys kind of competing against each other, we think. The downside to that competition However, is that when I figure out the number one easiest way to get leads and close deals, and it's my competitive advantage, I'm not telling anybody about it. Right. I'm not going to tell you because it's mine. And so I keep some of the great secrets that could lift my entire team up. And I keep the secret because you've fostered as the sales manager A competitive environment so we sometimes we're afraid that if we're too cooperative we we you know we'll be able to brainstorm better we'll be able to share best practices if we're cooperating so the dilemma becomes how do i create an environment where i balance my competition of my people and my cooperation with my people to create this synergy like think about it in learning is the best way to learn to create a competitive environment so if we're grading on the curve and I can only give so many A's, I guess that's the best way to create learning. I doubt it. Yet we're all at school competing for grades. We're all at work competing. And there are certain times I'm not questioning that we should compete. If I need to make a team, I want my team competing against each other to make the, to make the to decide who's going to be first string right on the team. So for a certain percentage of my camp with my team, I'm going to have them compete for their roles and their positions. But there comes a point where I need to then make them the team. And once I decide to make them the team, if competition every single day for your role or your position is there, then I'm going to actually impact our ability to cooperate together. I, at some point, need not individual goals per se. I need group goals, collective goals. So think about your organization. And if you're an organizational leader, even think about your family. A lot of parents try to motivate their kids by competing. I used to do it all the time. First one to bed gets a sucker. (laughs) And my kids would beat each other up to get to bed. Okay, you win the sucker. But they're crying and they're hyperventilating. (laughs) She hit me. Okay, well, we got them to bed. But they hate each other. There's a certain time to compete and a certain time to cooperate. and I'm afraid that many times the bullies unintentionally don't distinguish between the two. And for example, you can see in political runoffs, we could compete so hard against each other that we can't cooperate at the end of the, at the end of the primaries. You could compete so hard that your candidate is useless in a general election. And that was, you know, the old Reagan belief that he'll never say anything negative about a fellow Republican or whatever. It's not his role. He will only fight the Democrat or whatever. And there's times, if you notice, in our culture, in our uh, country, that our politicians are always in competition mode and they can't cooperate anymore. And yet, policy making and good, uh, you know, good democracy, healthy democracy, demands a time to cooperate as well. So think about that in your life and in your world. Are you an effective manager of when to cooperate and when to compete? And a lot of times I think the bullies are people that just think competition's the number one rule. And it's just not the case. It's not the case. And whichever rule you choose, if you go with competition or cooperation, there's a consequence. There's a payback. There's a payback. And um, you got to be careful of it, right? So think about it in your world. And don't just sit there and think everybody else is the bully. Is there any chance that people at your workplace consider you to be a bully? Just because of the jokes you make, what you say. Are you a bully? Anyway, take it in. Figure it out. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Um, Really, inside of each of us, there is a hero uh, hiding away and you don't need a radioactive spar- a spider to ignite it. Do you know where you what your contributions are? Do you have a pretty good insight as to what uh, you bring to this world? I wanted to take a minute and do the coach's corner and see if we couldn't give you some tools to figure out, you know what you bring to the equation. One of the great ways I found to identify mission and purpose and, and we heard it earlier with Bronco Mendenhall. he knows what his mission is. He is very clear about what matters most to him. Now, whether you agree with his values or his principles or whatever aside, there's something powerful about a human being that knows what they want. And especially when they know what they want in a principle-centered way. So if I had a microphone stuck it in front of your face and just asked you, what, what is your mission? What is your purpose? Would you have an answer? would you pretty clearly know how you would prioritize your life, your family, and uh, your priorities? Because if you don't know, then how do you know how to handle every day? If you don't know, how do you know what to say yes to and what to say no to? Somewhere, you have to know how to prioritize, and apparently, you've got to know based on your, you know, your bigger purpose, your bigger goals. If you don't know what you're about, then it doesn't matter really what you do every day, does it? That's the, old, uh, that's the old, you know, Alice in Wonderland's walking down the path, gets to the fork in the road, asks the Cheshire cat that's sitting there, hey, which, uh, which path should I take? And the cat says, well, where are you going? And she says, I don't know where I'm going. And the cat says, then it doesn't matter which path you take. If you don't know what your values and your principles are and what matters most to you, then it probably just doesn't matter. So what do you want people to say about you at your funeral okay or let's say it's your 90th birthday you made it to 90 you know no one thought you would the way you've been living you made it to 90 and on your 90th birthday you uh, your family comes and picks you up they put you in a limousine you're like, what the heck they drive you to the nicest hotel in town you just think you're going to dinner? Just think, oh, I guess my kids are gonna pay for dinner. And the last minute they pull you into a grand ballroom and the place is packed with people from your life, okay? Now you're ninety years old, so you have a lot of people from your life. And let's just say those people, uh, you know, even people that have died, moved on, everyone you want in the room that has that matters to you right now is in this room. Friends, neighbors, family, uh you know, your kids, your grandkids their friends, their family, everybody whose life you've impacted, they're all in this room. And you walk up, and you just can't believe it. You're looking at all of their faces. You see how powerful this is. You're being moved. You're moved emotionally. You just feel so grateful, so blessed for your life. And they walk you through the crowd. And when you get to the front of the room, there's a table. And sitting at the front of the room are seven people, okay? One person from every different part of your life. So your coworkers are there. And you have one coworker that's up at the front table. You have, uh, you know, your neighbors are there. You have a neighbor at the front table. You have a friend there at the front table. You have one of your children is at the front table. You have your one of your grandchildren's at the front table. Everybody that matters to you, all the different roles you've played. You have seven, basically seven people up front. And when you sit down at the, you know, the seat of honor, the MC says, we are now going to have a chance to hear from seven people uh, representing all of the different parts of your life. Now, what I want you to think about is what do you want these seven people to say about you? And this is an activity I would go home or go back to work, pull out your computer and start to answer this. What do you want these people to say about you? after you've magnified your life, you've been the best you can be, don't tell me what they'd say today if you died, right? What do you want them to say? What do you want your mom or dad to say about you? What do you want your brothers and sisters to say about you? What do you want your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers? And then I want you to write down exactly what you want them to say and just brainstorm it and let it just flow, right? Just let it flow out. And if you let it flow out Write each one of them. What do you want your mom to say, your friends to say, your kids to say, and let them just speak exactly what you want them to say. And then what you'll do is you'll get into a stream of consciousness and you get all of these ideas out, write as much as you want, as much as you can. You may even find out you're repeating yourself. Every single line you, you might repeat, as a husband, you're someone who gives, as a as a, as a a friend, you're somebody that gives, as somebody that were, as an employee, you're somebody that gives. And I want you to then take all of these different roles that you play and the speakers and what they said about you, and I want you to look for themes and trends. Are there certain things that you said regularly? Are you someone that serves? Are you somebody that gives? Are you somebody that uses humor positively? Are you somebody that lifts others? And I want you to identify, because out of all of these wonderful ideas about what you want people to say, you're going to come up with the principles that you can lead your life by. And this is what Emerson said. Uh, no, it was Thoreau that said, he went to the woods because he wished to live deliberately, to confront the essential facts of life and see what life had to teach, and not, when he come to die, discover that he had not lived. Thoreau wanted to know what his essential facts were. Now, of all of the things that are important to your life, the essential facts, those are the facts that are the you know the, the, the principles that you kept saying as, as um, a key part of who you are with each of these roles you're playing? Whatever you kept repeating and repeating and repeating is apparently an essential fact of who you are. So your job now isn't to do everything. You don't need to, to do everything on earth. you just need to do what you need to do, which is those essential things. Make sense? pretty basic idea isn't it it truly is a pretty basic idea but now you'll have it and then i would write those things down so i am a person that lifts others i am a person that serves i am a person and i'd write those down and then i might even have a definition for each one of them then when somebody comes and puts um a microphone in your face you can just sit there and say and they ask you what what's the purpose of your life um what's the purpose of your life, then you can just say, okay, it's pretty simple. My purpose is seven things. And just t- right, tell what your, your, key per, your key principles are. Does that make sense? The quote uh, that I love says, it's easy to say no when you have a deeper yes burning inside. Well, most of us have never spent the time to dig down and find out what that deeper yes is. So I don't need you to go be a superhero. And I don't need you to be a football coach like Bronco Mendenhall, but I do need you to go figure out what your principles and your values are. We've already got Bronco. We've already got Batman. So what are you going to bring to the game? What are you going to bring to your kids, to your family, to your neighbors? What are you going to bring that if you don't bring these principles, these ideas to this world, then, then we're out. We're all out. And it doesn't have to be a big movement, and it doesn't have to make millions of dollars, and it doesn't have to be anything like that. Really, if you notice, each of those principles—hard work, integrity, those things—those don't have to be big, big things. Those can just be very, very basic little things. We're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. welcome back friends to the matt townsend show you know over a million students will be attending college for the first time and while college marks the beginning of independence for some some other students are having their parents come along for their first year of college here to discuss helicopter parenting is author of the book how to raise an adult break free of the Overparenting trap and prepare your kid for success julie lithcott hames welcome to the program
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So great to have you. This is a, uh, I see it a lot just in my own life and my own work, uh, with students here at Brigham Young University, but more importantly in my coaching world. And I, I found that, um, a lot of us, and you, you have been a former Stanford University Dean of Freshmen. D- did you see a lot of kids coming in who's, who really had never experienced the world because their parents did all the experiencing for them?
1: Yeah, Matt, that's exactly what I was seeing, and it alarmed me because, in theory, I was working with students who are some of the most bright and capable um, in our nation, around the world, and yet they seem so hampered, so unfamiliar with their own selves, very reliant upon a parent to do everything from... Uh, Track their deadlines. Talk to faculty if there was a problem with a grade. um, Even call to wake them up. Um, (laughs) They seemed very good at going through the motions. Very, very good at going through the motions of life. But had they ever had to really kind of stand on their own? And many of them, for many of them, the answer was no. And they looked rather bewildered then um, and and afraid at the prospect of having to kind of be their own, be the adult in their own life.
0: Do I guess is that. Because they, they still got into Stanford. So it seems like I, maybe what we're doing to, to the requirements we're setting for kids to get in aren't necessarily that they're healthy adults, but just that or on the you know healthy young adults, but that they can pass the ACT or they can they can get a good grade. Are we are we just not preparing them for adulthood?
1: I think that's exactly right. And let me pause and say this is this is hardly just a Stanford. Problem. Right. And no, this is said, everywhere. See it at BYU. And yeah. I would talk to. Colleagues at campuses all over the country, all different types of schools, and we were all noticing the same thing in the last decade. Um, I call it the checklisted childhood. You've asked kind of what led to this, and my yeah. answer is: uh, we seem to have constructed in communities where parents are at least middle class, um, and certainly upper middle class and beyond, what I call the checklisted childhood, which is the the perfect childhood, the childhood where every afternoon has an enriching activity. But I think, in, this, in essence, we've put kids in a cage of enrichment. It's not in a wide open field. It's not an opportunity to play. It's, you know, take these tests, do this homework, be in this activity, get these accolades and these awards, all designed to lead to admission to whatever college we might have in mind. And so while a child might be very, very good at meeting our very, very high expectations, We've essentially pointed them in a certain direction, laid the path for them, smoothed the path. Sometimes we're dragging them down the path. (laughs) We shouldn't be surprised then when they get to whatever destination we had in mind and they are ill-equipped to kind of continue walking on their own
2: yeah it's
0: so true. That's such a great phrase. The checklisted childhood, so, as a parent, if I'm sitting there and I have the three things I need to get done for my kids every night, um that might be the wrong way to look at life. It might be the three things my kids need to do to become an adult.
1: That's exactly right. And I and to that point, too many of us are saying, "Oh, we have a lot of homework tonight." Well, no, we don't. <laughs> our son <laughs> does or our daughter does. You know, we're on the travel soccer team. No, our son is or our daughter is. I think too many of us have our own sense of self wrapped up in our kids' activities and our kids' achievement. Um, so we feel better or worse about our own selves if we can say, well, this is the grade we got or this is the opportunity oh, we're, we're taking advantage of.
0: They listen to that language, because I hear that all the time. Yeah. We. Well, we. When was the last time you kicked a goal, Mom? <laughs> Come on. Get out right. there. Talk, right. uh, talk to us about you introduced three types of over-parenting. Yeah. What, what do you call, what are the overs?
1: Yeah, well, I did this because we we use the phrase helicopter, snowplow parent, lawnmower parent. I wanted to get at the actual behaviors, and here's what they are. Um, Overprotection, this is the mindset that the world is scary and unsafe and unpredictable, and therefore I must prevent and protect at every turn instead Mm. of prepare you for what's out there. Uh, There's overdirecting, uh, otherwise known as the tiger type of parenting. This is the, you know, intense pressure to do a certain course of study, or become a certain type of person. Uh, I know best what leads to success, kid, and you will do as I say. Mm. And the third type is the hand holder or the concierge. You know, I will handle it for you. I will keep track of your deadlines like I'm your executive assistant. I will go talk to that authority figure in your life on your behalf. I will advocate for you. I will defend. I will, you know, smooth the path. I will hold your hand um, instead of teaching you how to be responsible accountable, um, you know, and advocate for yourself.
0: Boy, talk about creating a neurotic child. Yes,
1: well, we shouldn't be surprised. So many young adults, you know, on your campus, on my former campus, around the nation, are struggling with, you know, anxiety and depression at rates never before seen. And studies are starting to link this style of over-parenting with higher rates of anxiety and depression. Essentially, we're doing so much for them, having high expectations, trying to handle everything they can't handle for themselves. We're kind of depriving them at a very basic level of the chance to be their own person, which really messes with a person's psyche.
0: And does this, I mean, I guess, has this been going on for multiple generations? I mean, I don't remember being overprotected or over-directed or having my hand held.
1: Well, Matt, I don't know how old you are. I'm but, 47.
0: Uh, I just found out.
1: You're 47. Yeah,
0: I used to think well, I was 48. You know what? I'm 48,
1: but Bingo. sometimes I think I'm 47. So I'm right there with you. So, so did you? What dropped... did you feel? <laughs> well, things have changed, and let me tell you when things changed. Um, in the and I I learned this fascinatingly because um, I was working with college students. Um, starting in the late 90s. And that was when we first began to see parents kind of encroaching upon the shores of the university. (laughs) You know, how can I be involved in the day-to-day management of life? So I said, wait a minute, if you're you're 18 years old in 1998 and your parents are over-involved, what was happening when you were little, early 80s? Um, And I began to read up on this and to study the work of other people. And this is what I learned. In the early to mid-1980s, we had five important changes happening in this country. Number one, um, Stranger Danger was born. True. The concept, it was a made-for-TV movie, Adam... Uh, produced by John Walsh, you know, who went on yeah. about, right? Okay, so Stranger Danger, 1983, based on, th- th- that's when the fear was really born in our minds, 1983. The play date was born in 1984, perhaps <laughs> not unrelated, but also because we had a lot of moms going back to work, and all of a sudden the concept of when can kids play with one another was a little bit more complicated. So Stranger Danger, 83, Playdate, 84, self-esteem movement was born during this time. This is the notion, as you know, as a coach, yeah. you know, let's give them a a ribbon, a trophy, a certificate just for being on the team, not for being any good at it. <laughs> and so our kids' childhoods, our childhood bookshelves became littered with all this stuff. Um, then a book was published called A Nation at Risk, saying American kids needed you know, more teaching to the test, more testing in order to be more competitive with their international peers. And finally, we became safer. Seatbelt laws, bike safe, bike helmet laws, car seat laws all rolled into effect across the 50 states during the mid-1980s, and no doubt they made us safer on the roads, but they led to this mindset that we could literally prevent our kids from suffering any bruise. And so, you know, we've, we've become a nation with houses with, you know, rubberized corners on every <laughs> coffee table right. um, because we don't want them to have a scrape, a bump, or, or a bruise. So all of these things, you know, conspired to Changed childhood. You know, childhood was really now the domain of parents, um, hovering, watchful, you know, always there um, in ways that just previously had not been the case. And that set of kids, millennials, by the way, they're the earliest wave of the millennial generation, were subjected to this childhood. It's no wonder they could fail to launch it. Oh, the sure. Says. They've just been, you know, treated like veal. You know, raised to, for some perfect moment, but you know they're they're sort of slaughtered out in the real world. That we, yeah, but we've also fattened to,
0: them up too, haven't we? we they've, they've we've we've fattened them up like yeah. a good veal, I guess.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, isn't that it's true? And I, as I as you were going down that list, I'm thinking, yeah. But I was, you know, eighteen, right. so I, I, I guess I had experienced stranger danger, but I we didn't have the kidnapping cases that make the f- top of of the stories in the news and and then Nancy Grace talking about them for hours on end and I mean it's a, it's a whole different age of fear it seems like Well but the, but
1: to your point it's a different age of fear but the rates of such atrocities have not increased No so, we just know about them. We're all able to access news and information 24 7, 365, which was not true when you and I were young. Right, right. Okay, Thanks but, heavens. But the, right, <laughs> that's a different show. Okay. <laughs> but these things are not happening with greater frequency. In a nation with 74 million children, the FBI statistics um, indicate that 115 cases. Of child abduction and murder at the hands of a stranger are happening and that's an infinitesimal number given how many children we have in our nation now I'm not saying it's not horrific of course it's horrific I have two kids I have two teenagers I you know none of us can bear to imagine that kind of thing happening to any child but we behave as if it's likely every day every afternoon um, and so we don 't let them play in parks we don 't let them on sidewalks. The truth is they 're at far greater risk of death by being a passenger in a car right. but nobody 's questioning that they 're at far greater risk of death by playing football okay but totally. nobody's nobody 's questioning that so we have this really outblown notion of the extent to which that that lurking stranger is a real and present threat, and it really has in in many ways changed how we approach childhood.
0: That's so true. So true. Okay, let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Julia Lithcott-Hames. She's author of the book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kids for Success. When we come back, we'll be talking solutions. What can we do as parents to lighten up and uh, actually empower, put a little load on the child so that they can strengthen their back? We'll be back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping your children and you live longer, healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back.
2: Somewhere, somewhere
0: in above me, I know, I know that my mom was proud of me. Oh,
2: mama. Because I'm a
0: dentist. Welcome back <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> to the Matt Townsend Show. Nothing makes a mom more proud than when you finally are a dentist. That's from Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, you got to love it. Folks, today we're talking about parenting, really over-parenting. And uh, if you're not careful, you may not raise a child that could be a healthy adult. And when that happens, they're just going to be living with you and creating problems for the rest of your life, which, hey, for some might not. That's not bad. I'll do that. I'll raise him for the rest and his family. Joining us on the phone is Julie Lithcott Hames. She's the author of the book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kids for Success. Thank you so much, Julie, for being with us.
1: My pleasure. Nice to be back.
0: What a great uh, what a great topic and an important topic, especially as kids are starting school. Before the break you were talking to us about some of the dangers of overparenting, the the fact that we, you know, become the overprotective, over directing, handholding parent. But is there is there uh, the, the other side of the coin would be that we're under parenting, we're not we're not doing anything. Sure. We're just ignoring them. Do we need to worry about that as well?
1: Absolutely. So um You know, I'm not in any way advocating that we turn our back on our kids or neglect them. What I'm saying is, we have to parent for the long view, the long run, which is uh, to imagine that day, uh, way in the distant future, we hope, when we won't be around to uh, smooth our kids' path for them, and uh, or you know, or handle it, whatever it may be. We need to know our kids um, can can thrive out there uh, without us. Um, you know, and thriving doesn't mean that their solution is to text us to handle, you know, the stuff of life, whatever it is. Uh, I think a good word here is we need to know our kids can fend for themselves. You know, this is the job of, of any parent in the animal kingdom, you know, to raise our offspring, to have the skills so that they can look after themselves and um, and maybe even raise the next generation. So, um, so yeah, we don't want to be neglecting or abandoning them in any shape or, <laughs> or sense right. of the word. We want to be teaching them. Every year we ought to desire that our kids, you know, have, have learned to do more, are more responsible, um, you know, are, are, have better judgment, are more capable. And there's this beautiful four-step method that I learned from a mom here in Silicon Valley named Stacy Ashland. She's raising a kid with special needs, but she also has a second child developing typically. And she says, look, you know, when, you, when your kid has special needs, you have to be more deliberate about teaching life skills because the, the disability might get in the way. And she's got this handy four-step method that I think is brilliant and can apply to all of us. Um, for any skill, whether you're trying to teach a kid to make, make food in the kitchen or remember to put their own stuff in their backpack or learn how to cross the street, this is a, a beautiful method. Number one, you do it for them. And let's face it, we do that from infancy through toddlerhood through early childhood. You know, but, but we can start teaching them to do for themselves pretty young. But in the beginning, we're doing it for them. That's step one. Right. Step two, you do it with them. Step three, you watch them do it, and step four, they can do it completely independently. So the teaching and learning and growth happens in steps two and three, where they're, you, you know, you're you're doing it with them, and then you're watching them, not micromanaging them, but you know, giving them advice and guidance um, um, and feedback as they need it. But ultimately, we want our kids to get to step four, so that when they go off to BYU. They don't find themselves three or four weeks into it saying, oh, my gosh, I don't know how to make it through a day without my mom or dad telling yeah. me
0: what to do. I burnt the ramen again. I burnt the ramen, Mom. Yeah. yeah. Or so which true.
1: type of ramen do I like? <laughs> you know, like so unfamiliar with making their own food, they don't even know what it is they like. They're just accustomed to seeing it arrive on a plate.
0: It's And, and even, even the steps in between these where we do it for them, we don't always create a nice segue of now letting them – do it themselves, and right. we we just kind of throw it at them. But right. you can ramp it up over time.
1: Right, you must ramp it up over time; otherwise, it's cold and cruel. You know, if you've been doing too much for a you know sixteen or seventeen year old, and then eighteen year old, and then they go off to college you've really dropped them cold turkey in a brand new environment where they will be expected to be able to think and plan and do and, you know, handle so much for themselves. It's really quite unfair to coddle them through 18 years and then drop them off and expect them somehow to thrive. I mean, that's on you, parent, if that's – if your kid has trouble thriving at that point, well, take a look in the mirror, okay? Yeah, childhood is meant to prepare our kids for that inevitable day when they're capable of going off to college, going to serve on a mission, right. going into the military, you know, going into the workplace, whatever it is. You know, back in the day, as we like to say, you know, you and I were coming up in the 80s. You know, 18 meant something quite different than what it means today. And I think we have to take a hard look at what's going on and why that is. And why, why, are, why do we desire for our kids to be less capable somehow than we were? Hmm.
0: It's such a because we we would say well we don't want that Julie we just want to give them the best
1: right of course and Matt we love our kids fiercely we parents we just this this love we have for our children, this biological impulse is so strong. It's so powerful. And here's where we've just gotten a little bit misguided. We think to love is to do it all for them. Instead of realizing to love is to teach them to do more and more for themselves. We ought to be interested in developing their character, their work ethic. You know, we need to send them out in the world capable of rolling up their sleeves, working hard and pitching in and being really kind to fellow humans. I mean, those are the building blocks. You know, that's, you, you prepare a kid with, with those fundamentals, you know, they can go out and succeed in the world. Um, but instead we've decided, no, 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 I have to arrange it, I have to plan it, I have to remind them, I have to do it for them. Parents are kind of overhelping with homework <laughs> in so many communities, more interested in helping their kid get the A than in making sure their kid learns. And so they become college students who still send work back home for parents to check. I mean, that's just a problem in so many ways.
0: And it eventually, uh, I had a, I had a family member that would always edit my paper. So I, would, I knew in my head I just had to get it to about 85 <laughs> percent, and then my brilliant family member would just edit it and clean it all up. Right. Until all of a sudden, I'm in grads, I'm getting a master's degree, and I'm thinking... <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to pay someone to edit my paper because right. I don't have that confidence.
1: Well, and you know what? Right. Editing is a great skill. We all should, if we're writers, we, we should show our work to other people and get feedback. There's a difference between someone um, circling problems, writing comments, saying, you know, this isn't clear. What do you mean here? Say more. You've got to support this. That's helpful and that's ethical. But when a parent goes in and outright rewrites it for the kid, right. because they know, the parent knows, I'm a better writer, therefore I'm going to polish this, the kid isn't learning anything. The people that the paper is submitted to think the kid has done this work, that's the unethical part. You know, and the kid kind of knows, I didn't do my own work. I'm not actually capable. So, you know, there's, there's that sort of fine, there's that fine line, there's the healthy side of helping. You know, there's the appropriate ethical side, and then there's the crossing the line into inappropriate.
0: Talk about the the definition of success. I guess part of it you just did where it's more about character and work ethic and, I guess, uh, your ability to adapt than it is about becoming the dentist. Right. But, but exactly. for parents, so much – it's like you're going to college, you will get a degree, and, it, you know, you probably ought to be a doctor like your dad.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you're going to college – I pretty much don't have a problem with, in that a college degree these days is kind of the equivalent in terms of a workplace credential, you know, that a high, as a equivalent to a high school degree from, say, 30 years ago. That is, more jobs will be available to you if you have that college degree. Not to say everyone has to go, but I can see why parents are saying you're going to college. We want our kids to be prepared for greater opportunity. Telling them what to be, though, that I find is an assault on the human self okay? We parents, we're, we want them to follow in our footsteps. I'm a doctor, therefore you should be a doctor. Mm. Or we want to live vicariously. I always wanted to be a doctor. I didn't become one, so now I want to make my kid become a doctor. Those are really problematic things, okay? Right. That's about our own ego and our own needs. Instead, we ought to take an interest in that little human, our son or daughter, take an interest in what they seem to be good at, what they seem to love, and, and encourage them toward those things, Okay. So it's not that we should want our kid to be a doctor or a dentist. We want our kid to discover their talents and their skills and what, you know, what they value, what yeah. they care about, and then go and, and do that work. I mean, that's, that's a meaningful, rewarding, professional life when we're doing work we're not only good at but that we also love.
0: And you can help them discover their talents and skills right now. You could be – I mean, there's really awesome assessments. You could be talking about skills and character traits versus, you know, goals and uh, trophies.
1: Yep. That's stuff we
0: could be doing today.
1: Absolutely. There are great assessments like um, the Strength
0: Finder. Yeah, Finder, yeah.
1: Um, When a kid is older, the Myers-Briggs. Here's here's the way I like to think about it. When I was a college dean at Stanford – Students would say, you know, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And I said, all right, that's normal. You know, <laughs> don't worry. Let's start talking about what you do know about yourself. You know, well, what what are you really interested in topically? You know, what, what, what issues do you care about? And and a student might say, you know, well, I really care about poverty. I'm really, you know, I'm really, you know I want to do something about poverty. And I say, okay, great. It's great to know that. Now let's um, just take that as an example. Now let's talk about how you like to be in the world. Um, Do you like to write? Do you like to do research? Do you like to um, be talking to people all the time? Uh, Do you like to travel? Do you like to crunch numbers? Um, Because everyone from economists to biologists to journalists to poets uh, can help alleviate poverty through Mm. their work. Mm. So you've got to learn about yourself. You know, do I want to be the, uh, the economist, you know, crunching numbers that are going to turn into some kind of policy that's going to help alleviate poverty? Or do I want to be a narrative journalist telling really powerful stories that will move other people to change their habits uh, and do more to alleviate poverty? And it was just a way of illustrating almost anything is possible. But, you know, at the root of what you should do is know yourself. What am I good at? What do I love? You know, and plan accordingly.
0: Mm. Julie, as we wrap it up, what's the one thing? I always ask for the one thing that makes the biggest difference. If, if a parent really needs to get on it, let's say they've got a 17-year-old and they've been a little behind in, in parenting, what's the one thing they can do today to get it started?
1: Well, uh, one thing. Uh, realize that your job as a parent is to put yourself out of a job. Um And therefore, sit down with that 17-year-old and say, I've been doing too much for you. I was doing it with love, but I realize the most loving thing is to help you do for yourself. So let's pick three things you're going to be responsible for. We're going to teach you how to do it. We're going to help you, but let's say in two to three months, you're going to be capable of doing these things by yourself.
0: Mm. Good stuff. Julie, yeah. you did it. You did it. You did it. Good job. Julie Lithcott-Hames, uh, How to Raise, How to an, raise adult. an Adult. Thank you so much.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Great
0: to have you on the show. How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kids for Success. Just one day at a time. One day at a time. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, continue the discussion. We'll be uh, doing a little feature on Labor Day so you know what to celebrate this weekend. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
0: Play ball. Play ball. You know, we when we bring on great guests like Julie in the book, How to Raise an Adult, we don't want to induce guilt, right? That's, that's not the goal. But it is to just inform you uh, of what's happening out there and what the data and the research shows. If you want your child to be an independent, healthy being, you have to become intentional in that process don't assume that just getting them to graduate from high school is the key to getting them to be a a dynamic healthy character driven child right you got to talk about character if you want to grow character you have to talk about uh, accountability and responsibility if you want that if you if you want trust and respect from your child then you have to talk about trust and respect you can't expect to get something from your child that you're not putting into them in an intentional overt way. So just reevaluate, look at what you do every day, and just say, great, what's one thing I can do to pick it up and make it even better? Maybe I could stop doing a few things as well, like homework. Maybe I could turn off the TV and spend a little more time helping them. Anyway, again, not to not to guilt you, not to make you feel overwhelmed, but just it's part of the game. It's part of the game. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
2: You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Just...
0: Bring the honesty and the integrity to the game.
2: Your guide on the side.
0: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend show.
1: Doctor Matt Townsend.
0: This is the coach's Corner, where uh, I'll give you my take on how you handle people that are are putting you down. So when you come when you you come to it, the reality is if they're going to put you down. It's about them, right? So one of the most powerful things you can do when someone else is being a jerk is not take the bait, right? Don't follow the lead of the most jacked up person in the conversation. You don't need to be mad because they're being a jerk. In fact, the minute you're mad and affected and go quiet and angry and withdraw or become mean and aggressive because they're rude and aggressive... You're just following their lead. And if you really want to have power with another person, don't chase them. Just understand them. So just stand there and shake your head in awe, like, wow, this is going on. Everybody communicates who they are while they're talking. They don't they can say whatever they want about you, but you don't have to believe it. There's a, we all know when our five-year-old sits there and tells us that we're stupid. It's, you know, it's midnight and they're tired and you just got off of a long drive from a vacation and you're putting them to bed and your five-year-old's throwing a fit. You understand that what they're saying isn't factual. They're just tired. Something's going on. So we don't believe it when they say they hate us. <laughs> We understand they're just too tired. They're overslept or they're underslept. So we don't take offense to the kid throwing the tantrum, but we somehow become offended by an adult throwing a tantrum. So there's three signs I look for that are basic indicators that I wouldn't believe much of what's being said. Okay, now it doesn't mean there's not truth in there because there is, but I wouldn't just take it to heart. The three things I look for are negative emotion. Whenever I see negative emotion coming out of people. So negative emotion, remember, could be angry, judgmental, rude. If I see emotion like hate or frustration, any negative emotion that I see. Now, some people, when they're negative and emotional, they yell. Some, when they're negative and emotional, they just avoid. But when I see that, I know that something's going on. So I know that it's a sign that I need to probably be careful. Negative emotion, whenever I see it, however it's coming out. If I see somebody venting on me about something that's happening, um, I I watch it, and it mitigates everything else that I listen to and how I interpret and what I do. Negative emotion is one thing I look for. Another one is understanding. Do I understand the context that this is about? Do I have enough information on the issue? Because most of the time, most of us don't have all the facts. We just don't know the context of what they're even talking about. When somebody has been, is being offensive to us, we don't know what happened five minutes before. We don't know if they took their vitamins in the morning. We don't know if they, they've eaten. We don't know if they're having a really hard time at home. We don't know. So because we don't know, I would assume the understanding's not there. So one of the things you might want to do is if you see negative emotion and understanding that you're not clear what's going on, and I would assume most of the time we're not, then I'd tread lightly. I'd, I'd slow down. I'd just slow down. Like, it reminds me of like a bus stopping, or not even a bus, a car stopping at a, um, at a crosswalk. You, I guess, could just drive around the car and just blow through the crosswalk. But the car is stopping at a crosswalk for a reason right? It's stopping for a reason. Don't assume you know what the reason is. You might want to slow down and get your own data for why they're stopping. So if somebody's being a jerk to you in a conversation at work, don't assume you know why. And don't assume it's from yesterday. And don't assume it's because of the bit, the deal that didn't go through. Or You don't know. So Try to get more understanding. So if I see negative emotion or I don't have the understanding as to what's going on, I lack data, or another one is trust. If I have a historic issue where there's lower trust, then I know I need to tread lightly. I've got to be careful. If somebody doesn't trust me, for example, a teenager that isn't coming forth with information, they probably don't trust you can handle it. So I'm not going to go off on them. I'm not going to freak out about it. I'm just going to notice that it's a sign that I need to be more careful. But when I look at the signs, it's so important because I call them vital signs. When I see negative emotion, understanding that's struggling that I don't, I'm not clear on, and trust, when I see those signs, I know that I need to respond more effectively and carefully. It doesn't mean I need to run. doesn't mean I shouldn't say something, but I need to know the signs because the signs tell me what I should do next. The, the, the negative emotion, understanding, and trust, it's, they're basic. It's just vital signs. And when you see them, by the way, when things are going more effectively, you'll see the emotion in the person starts to drop. So my goal in an effective conversation with somebody is to manage the emotion, right? To make sure the emotion goes from negative, if possible, to neutral or healthier, positive. To make sure the understanding goes up and gets healthier and more information is there and to make sure that we can eventually facilitate trust or at least get to neutral. Sometimes our goal is just simply to get to neutral. When somebody comes at you and they're bringing a lot of venom and a lot of vinegar and they're ugly and they're nasty, there's something else going on. And it's not necessarily about you, even if everything they are saying is about you. They're probably saying it's about you because they're negatively charged and the information and understanding is down and trust isn't there. So instead of taking the bait and reacting to this person the way they're reacting to you, which would ensure a major argument, right, or a major withdrawal from each other, instead just recognize you seem really frustrated. Tell me why you're so frustrated, and let them give you information. Let them give you more data, more information. You might find out it has nothing to do with you. Well, I was just down the hall and John's canceling whatever project. So now all of a sudden I spent a year on a project that's not even going to be used. Oh, okay. Interesting. So now as we gather information, we now know it's about the project. It's not about me. Interesting thing. Why would he come to me spewing Maybe because I'm I I'm somebody he trusts. In the end, we need to be there for each other in a way that we can help each other vent through some of our stuff. And you also need to watch out. Do you tend to just vent on certain people? If somebody is constantly rude to you, if they're constantly demeaning to you, if they're constantly putting you down, there's constant negative emotion there. There's also misunderstanding. There's something going on that they don't get. That's a conversation you need to have. Instead of fighting about whatever you tend to fight about with these people, we need to get down to the deeper issue and find out what is it that makes you more negative about me and find out. Well, you're just, you just don't care. And they'll throw out what I call an interpretation. An interpretation is just their view of something I did and i try to understand it you don't need to fix it you just need to understand it does that make sense vital signs that's why when the you know the ambulance or the paramedics pull up the first thing they're going to do is check your vitals because they won't know how to treat you until they check your vitals we just went over with dr linda sepade uh, in a, a big list of things you can do as a comeback but before you come back with some treatment i'd make sure you understand the vital signs There's not, you know, there's no, not every treatment should be used on everybody. You need to know how to kind of read the tea leaves. You need to know how to read what's going on with the person. And the three most important things I would read is negative emotion. I'd read the negative emotion. I'd also read their understanding. Are we clear? Are we on the same page? And I'd read, where's our trust historically? The higher the trust, the more you're free to say those are the vital signs that's the coach's corner just simple ideas folks helping you uh, create healthier happier lives man we all need it we all need to be able to read people better and be less offensive and less offended for heaven's sakes you're listening to the best of the matt townsend show you know it's such an interesting thing this parenting uh role that we all play because you love your kids to death and You know, it used to just be a little easier because you were just dad and and you just say, no, we're not doing that. But when they come to this age of 20, you you have to start partnering with them on a completely different level. And when you think about some of the biggest mistakes we make, uh, you know, we don't we don't let our kids do drugs. Right. We're pretty strong on that. We're pretty clear. We don't let them party. We we're careful that they're not. Uh, you know that they're not being promiscuous that they're not out there getting in trouble with their boyfriend or their girlfriend you might you might watch all of that a lot more closely but do you watch and spend enough time actually teaching them about finance teaching them about their career do you focus more um, time on helping them understand just how to get a job how to how to go about you know keeping a job how to how to do what you need to do to succeed in this world. And at what point do you just quit parenting? I don't think you ever do. If, if your child ends up having a, a credit breakdown, guess where they're going to come? They're back. And now they're living in your basement. And so it might behoove us to, to actually get on it. And especially if you know you're not very good at the credit thing, if you know that you're not watching your finances closely enough, then make sure that you, you teach your kids. And if, if you don't know, make sure that you advise your kids to go find out. That is such a slippery slope, this credit the, the, and the free supposed money we get with our children and their student loans. Because one semester could put them five grand in debt, right? Plus, they're going to have their own credit card on the side. And if they're not paying off their debt, like, you know, the majority of students aren't fully paying off their debt, then this little $5,000 loan turns into 6000 that they don't even know that they don't feel the impact. It's kind of like running into a wall, you know, driving your car and you drive your car right into a cement wall. Well, that's not a problem if you don't feel the pain for four years. Think of how many things can go wrong with you after running into a cement wall, and you didn't feel any pain from it for four years. The, the dilemma, there's a delay between the impact and when you feel the impact when it comes to student loans, and it could be four years. But in four years, you're going to feel the pain of four straight years of running into cement walls. So we got to do something about it, and we, we need to inform our, our children. And I wouldn't just you know bet on the federal government just you know absolving everyone from their student loan debt it's just not going to happen you're going to at some point you're going to pay the piper and so let's just let's just do what we can and and as a parent it's hard because like you know you've got you're dealing with your own debt let alone their debt let alone worrying about Greece's debt everybody's got debt so it's, it's a modeling thing. We as parents need to step up and become the change, right, as Gandhi used to say. We must become the change we seek in the world. You can complain all you want about the debt of this country, but you want to change that? Then teach your children. You can complain about the debt of the world and how indebted everybody is? Then change your children. Quit talking about it if you're not going to do anything about it. Eh? We're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. welcome back friends to the matt townsend show uh as we go through life we've got a lot of meetings we attend and they could be meetings from community meetings church meetings family you know you might have a family meeting once in a while and at business it's pretty much the name of the game meetings 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 in fact even sometimes you'll see a sports team uh of one of your children once they finish the game they usually gather you know on the sidelines or near the sidelines. And they talk about what happened during the game. Uh, But have you ever wondered if those meetings in the end, are they really very effective? And are the meetings that you attend very effective? The same uh, ideas that uh, we use in our businesses to make them more effective would would also impact the rest of our meetings that we attend. A post-quick meeting wrap-up may be... The answer for a lot of us to, to actually capitalize on the time we've already spent. Joining us to talk about uh, meetings and uh, how to end a meeting to make sure that we actually do something with what we've just spent our time talking about is Bob Frisch. He is one of the world's leading strate- strategic facilitators. He's also the author of the book, uh, Who's in the Room? How Great Leaders Structure and Manage Teams Around Them, and is a, as a writer for Harvard Business Review and has written many articles there. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Good morning. How are you this morning? Excellent,
0: excellent. Good to have you on the show. Now, Bob, do you love a good meeting? Or when you think I've got to go to a meeting, what do you think?
2: Well, I have to tell you, Mac- Malcolm Gladwell said it takes 10,000 hours to master something. Yeah. And because of what I do for a living, I've spent a lot more than 10,000 hours <laughs> in other people's meetings and uh they're uh, they're an art form they're the i think of them very much as the forum within which business gets conducted or or nonprofits or government work but we really make progress by meeting with other people. That's how people come together. It's how ideas get spread. It's how compromises get made. It's how decisions get made. So, meetings are one of the most important things that a person can do in the course of their career and something a lot of people don't spend a lot of time about. My partner Carrie and I at our firm. Sort of obsessed about meetings. We think a lot about what makes a good meeting. Well, and you, we found it to be a, a, a nice topic. A lot of people want to hear more about how to make their meetings more effective.
0: You too have written so many articles um, about meetings that <laughs> on Harvard Business Review, I sit here and I think, really, we, we spend thousands of hours in a meeting and yet we don't even necessarily tie down our learnings, our best practices. A lot of us have never even been trained in holding a meeting.
2: Well, I think in many companies, I don't think anybody's going home at night saying our meetings are lousy. Yeah. But I think they are hopelessly sub-optimized. <laughs> I think people feel like, gee, I expected to get more than I did. And so that's the problem that, you know, Carrie and I now for about 30 years, in the, 15 years in this room, about 30 years of my career I have decided that I am going to obsess about how to make meetings better. Hmm. And uh, Harvard Business Review is quite receptive to that. They sort of consider us their meeting experts. So we write about the topic, we blog about the topic, and our consulting firm, Strategic Offsites Group, focuses on the most important meetings that are held in many companies during the year, which is the strategy offsites of the executive teams and the boards. Hmm.
0: And, And you go in and facilitate those? Is that what you do?
2: We facilitate them, but more importantly, we spend somewhere between a month and three months designing them. Oh, wow. Uh, There's an old joke about consultants that they're folks who will borrow your watch and then charge you to tell you the time. (laughs) We borrow everybody's watch before the meeting, and we'll say, Look, these folks think it's 3 o'clock. These folks think it's 2 o'clock. These folks are in a completely different time zone. (laughs) We walk in having done surveys, interviews, other diagnostics, so we know pretty much what are the most important issues and what are the thoughts of the people in the room before the meeting starts. So rather than spend half the meeting teasing out who thinks what, we spend a lot of time before meetings understanding that and then using the meeting to get the group aligned around an answer.
0: And that that seems like the principle, right, is uh, planning. And and you, you end up then helping to do a lot of the planning, the thinking, the or- orchestrating, um... And, and then so pre-planning seems like a critical part of it. And then I guess sticking to the plan is a critical part of it. One of the things we, we found in one of your articles about was about how you end a meeting. Yeah. Uh, talk about ending meetings. And you in, in the article, you, you mentioned about sports teams and how, you know, how they kind of do, a, I guess, a post mortem. A lot of military, you know, special forces teams, I guess any military uh, team would also do postmortems as well
2: right i mean it's a, it's a regular feature so so going back to your earlier comment i mean you know covey once said to, to begin with the end in mind right very very often people go into a meeting and say well what's this meeting for oh we're going to talk about the company picnic no 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 at the end of this meeting what will we have debated decided discussed discovered at the end that we don't know right now what are we actually getting together to do so many meetings have a topic they don't necessarily have a purpose mm. and so obviously the purpose of a football game is to win um that one's easy yeah um but there are certain things i'm sure that every team intends to do when they walk out of the field they, they've been thinking about the game they've been watching game films they they have they have a game plan at the end, before everybody gets in their Ferraris and drives home if it's a professional football team um, they they always spend a few minutes in the locker room, even my my kids' you know high school baseball team right before they leave the field, the coach brings them over, they shake the other team's hand, coach brings them over, spends five or ten minutes, talks to the team, and then they go see Mom and Dad and get driven home it, it you know it's a It's a natural course of many, many teams. To either debrief what just happened, make sure there's no bruised feelings, um, take some lessons away before they leave the field, they wrap it up. Very often with business meetings, people, somebody looks at their watch, the meeting was scheduled 9 to 10, it's 10 o'clock, got another meeting, fold my notebook, and you leave. And, and they don't bother taking literally one or two minutes to actually end the meeting properly. And we found a little bit of discipline. Again, one of the things we've looked at is, how do you end a meeting? So we did a little piece for Harvard. uh, You know, don't don't end a meeting before you do these three things. But in our mind, a meeting should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Many, many meetings in many organizations just have a middle. Mm. You jump into a conversation you've already had 15 times. You kind of spin it around the 16th time. Time's up. Go off and nothing really gets accomplished. And if it did get accomplished, it wasn't documented, it wasn't agreed to, nothing gets done. We find a little bit of discipline at the end of a meeting saying, okay, it's five minutes at 10, meeting ends at 10, let me spend five minutes wrapping up the meeting. Everybody understands what we've discussed, decided. We'll talk about that in a minute. And and before we go on our way, let me just spend a couple of minutes wrapping up the meeting, then we'll be out of here on time. Hmm. And that couple of minutes of less discussion time, more wrap-up time, adds enormously to the productivity of the meeting.
0: Yeah, beginning, middle, end. it sounds like a lot of times the <laughs> middle is more like a muddle, right? Where we just, we're just throwing everything around and it's kind of going nowhere.
2: Well, you know, it's funny. The dangerous thing about this discussion is most people will say, well, that's common sense. Yeah, Everybody, you know, duh. But think back to the last five meetings you've been to. Did you do that when uh. you had media? I don't want to say anything about the organization you work for, but when you get together with your, your your team, your colleagues, your boss, whatever, is this a natural thing that happens? And the answer is, in most companies, it doesn't. It's very logical, and it's it's not complicated. People just don't do it.
0: Is there now? It seems like then there's kind of a human nature. There's a human reason why we don't do it. Is it? Is it? We don't want to tie down accountability. What What is it that would make us? muddle it up so much in the middle and then leave without anybody clearly knowing what we're doing. What's, what, why does that happen?
2: I think it's habit. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we do work for a, a very large chemical company, and we're, we're in the headquarters building. We're not in a plant. We're in the headquarters building. Every single meeting, somebody gets up and says, let me discuss the exit from this room. And they'll tell you, in case of an emergency, we go down the hall, you go 15 feet to the right, there's an emergency stairs. If that's blocked, you go 20 feet to the left, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They give the actual egress instructions. Why? Because chemical companies are very, very safety conscious. Every meeting of every group at every facility everywhere in the world starts with a safety briefing. That's just habit. And they and, and you, when you start to instill it in, it becomes, when I first did it, it's like, I'm in an office tower. How do I need to know where the elevator is? Like, what's going on here? And they said, no, Bob, this is what we do here. Every meeting starts with this. And they've so built it into their routine, it's absolute second nature to them. Yeah. And, and I think wrapping up meetings well is second nature to me, and the clients we've worked with tend to automatically revert to it. I think if you start doing it in a couple of months, this, this is how meetings end around here. And, and, and three things, as we wrote in the piece that you yeah. mentioned, there's three specific things we recommend as the three habits to start with that will really help to drive that productivity.
0: In fact, let's um, let's actually do this. Let's take a break and come back and have you go through those three things uh, sure. that are the keys to the wrap-up. And I guess these all take place, Bob, like in the last five minutes of a is meeting, that, if that. that yeah. Okay, awesome. We'll uh, continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. We're speaking with Bob Frisch. You can go uh, look out and find more up, uh, about to Bob at strategicoffsites.com, strategicoffsites.com. Interesting insights about your meetings, folks. You have a beginning, the typical muddle, and then the end when you're supposed to have a typical middle. We'll get to all of that. More with Bob Frisch when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Okay, well, before we get started, you should know that there are five different styles of conflict. My shouting Temper style defeats your monkey style.
1: Can we go? I have a lot of work to do. Nope.
0: Nobody could hold a meeting better than Michael Scott on The Office. I hope that's not true. Our guest today uh, would probably have an argument with that. Bob Frisch joins us. He is a writer for HBR, Harvard Business Review. He and his partner at strategicoffsites.com. They're experts in meetings and also really more than that, organizational design, offsite facilitation, consulting, strategy design. And uh, Bob joins us today to talk us through an article he wrote uh, that was titled, Don't End a Meeting Without Doing These Three Things. He's helping us understand that every meeting needs a beginning, a middle, and an and an end, the close of the meeting, and he's going to walk us through what are the three most important things we all do in the last few minutes of a meeting. Bob, thank you so much for being with us again. It's a pleasure. Talk about your uh, the three key things. So let's say we, we've had a meeting, we've been in there for our 55 minutes, and really, you need to go Google. Everybody needs to go Google. Bob Frisch and HBR... Harvard Business Review, and it would get, it'll get you to a page that has probably, I don't know, 10 articles, I don't know how many are on them, 20 or something, I think. But one of them, Bob, is also about standing meetings. There's a lot of new rules about how to make a meeting more valuable um, that we won't have time to talk about today. Talk about the last couple minutes as we wrap up a meeting.
2: Sure. And by the way, it may not be just an hour meeting. It could be a half-day meeting, right. a full-day meeting, a multi-day meeting. You know, If it's a 10-minute stand-up meeting at the beginning of the day, it's one thing. But if a a group of people is getting together to meet on a topic, the first thing is at the end to confirm any decisions that were made or next steps agreed to. So roll the clock back from the very start and say, okay, what we've agreed to is we're going to go with plan A, not plan B. Mary, Bill, and Betty are going to go off and look at this. They're going to come back next week, and they're going to report on X. Very specifically, just remind people here's what was decided today, here's, here's the next steps. Not a recap of, let me take you through what we just did. Mm-hmm. But any key decisions, things that have come to closure or next steps, you should go ahead and just recap those so people understand who's going to do what by when, coming out of the meeting, or here's what this group has agreed to. Sometimes if we do a two-, two or three-day offsite and there's lots of stuff being discussed, you may not remember at the end of day two what happened the morning of day one. Right. Often we'll build what we call a wall of decisions. As a decision gets made, we put it on a flip chart and put it on a wall. And over the course of a couple of days, there's 10, 15 items up there, things that have been discussed and resolved, and here's what's going to happen now. We simply go over Here's what's going to happen as an outcome of our having gotten together.
0: Who does? So, who's responsible for that, Bob? The the meeting host. Uh, does the host assign somebody to do these this review?
2: Well, sometimes it's unclear. Often it is the person who either called the meeting or led the meeting. But if it's a group of peers who meet and there's no natural uh, person to do this, you may say, "Gee, you know, Bob, will you take care of the recap? Will you scribe the meeting or take care of the recap?" Hmm. Make it clear that Bob's now not in charge of the decisions. Simply the person at the end we're going to turn to and say, can you recap what happened here? And maybe write up some a little after a memo. Maybe not. But, but it's very important that you go around and, and simply say, here is the outcome of this meeting. And just remind everybody, because somebody may say, so wait a minute. I actually didn't think we committed to have it right. for the next meeting. I thought we were going to have it next month. Yeah. Okay, now we spend a little bit of time and close the loop because it wasn't exactly clear what had been agreed to. So, by recapping, anybody has that sort of speak now or forever, you have the ability to simply say, because if nobody speaks up, the assumption is what I'm saying is what we just agreed huh. to.
0: Well, and you can see, like you gave the the example from your chemical company, if you made it a habit to take the last five minutes or three minutes recapping mm-hmm. and gave a, even gave a chance for everybody on the team eventually to lead the recap so you could train everybody up,
2: this could become a habit. It, it should become a habit. Right. <laughs> That's the goal. It's happening. Now, the, the second habit is, If it's a longer meeting, again, if it's a regular every day, we get together for a half hour and talk about inventory, it's one thing. But if it's a meeting that people have been thinking about, that's been planned, your subordinates know that people are going away to talk about topic X, or you've been in the conference room with these folks for four hours, and other people know a meeting is taking place, we then would move and say, what's the communications point? We're not trying to script anybody, we're not telling you what to say, but... When we walk out, or you know, if it ends on Friday, when we walk into the office Monday morning and, 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 and people say, gee, boss, you, know, you were in Atlanta, you guys met for a couple of days, what happened? Hmm. What are you going to say? What are we all going to say happened here? Because sometimes things are decided that should not go into or are not going to go into public consumption immediately. Let's all agree on a handful of communication points. What are the highlights, what are the three or four or five bullet points that characterize what we did today so that we can communicate it to our subordinates? Again, we're not trying to dictate what people say. Let's just be sure there's common messages. So if Mary, who wasn't here, asked three of us what happened, she gets roughly the same story from mm-hmm. the people, and she's not playing touch the elephant. So what are a couple of communication points?
0: If That's we have a, a larger
2: idea. meeting, if we're getting together with a – a 12-person executive team or 30 or 40 people, what we'll do is we'll actually text those communication points to the distribution list for the meeting as they're getting in their car walking out of the building. Huh. So they have it on their phone. So if they, if they are walking in the office, one of those communication points, often there's an email or text message from our team if we facilitate the meeting saying, here are the four communication points we all agreed to.
0: Yeah, this seems like uh, this seems like what high, highly organized and and kind of smart communication firms do anyway. It, it's, it almost sounds like what a political candidate would do, uh, but to keep everyone on point, and yet it's just a best practice for a business.
2: Well, but even for something that's lower stakes, let's say we just got together, we're having a rough year, we're not sure if we're going to do the the, the holiday party again this year, or we're going to be giving you know, $25 gift certificates to folks. People know we're meeting it. We were talking about the holiday party. We've decided we're going to wait till next month and see what next month's numbers bring. Is that what we're going to tell folks? Or hmm. we're going to tell folks, you know, we've met on it. We're waiting and seeing. We're going to have everybody will have an answer before Thanksgiving. And we'll let you know what we're doing. Yeah. Is that what we're all going to say? So just make sure that everybody, and again, we're not asking anybody to fib. Right. Let's just be sure that we're all very consistent about what we're going to communicate to the people who aren't with us right now. And so communication points are often a very important thing because people not in the room are going to be asking what happened. And and so as well as, number one, which is what do we actually decide, number two is if people ask us what happened, what are we going to say? Mm. And there it can be a little more, oh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about this, there was a healthy debate about that. That can not just be the outcomes. It can also be a little bit of, you know, I don't get together with these people but once a year. It was really terrific just connecting with colleagues, and a lot of the time was spent just, you know, reinforcing the bonds across these three departments.
0: Yeah, that's, That can be a communication point. Totally. And again, it just seems so smart. to. It, it just is another step of everyone on the same page. We're all on the same page. Uh, what was the third one? What's the third key point?
2: So the third one is a little bit um, – a little bit selfish, and this is often done when there is a meeting owner or there is a facilitator or somebody outside is helping you with the meeting. Um, But even if it's a more informal group of peers, if you only meet on a topic infrequently, we often say, okay, roll this back to the very, very beginning when you got the meeting notice, the pre-read we sent out, the agenda, the room, the topic, the lunch we brought in." the temperature of the room, anything at all, what should have or could have been different for next time. Hmm. So often people will say, well, next time we meet and we're talking about so-and-so, it really is inappropriate that Fred's not here. So I'll write down, Fred's not here. I'm not going to debate whether the person's right or wrong. I'm simply getting input. Somebody will say, well, you know, there was no vegetarian option at the lunch. No vegetarian option. You know, whatever it may be, as trivial as you may think, people need to think about: okay, what would I do differently? What would I like differently? And this is kind of the name of continuous improvement. What should be different next time? If we could re-roll the tape, what would be different? Then you say what went well. You know, this meets meets four times a year. We, you know, we are the whatever it is committee what went well what did you like about the meeting if anything often you don't hear anything at first you got to wait a few minutes but but people eventually will say well you know we just don't talk very much and it's good we actually met or they'll say i really like the fact that we got the budget numbers 3 weeks ago and i had a chance to talk about them with my team so i call them uh, pluses and deltas what do you like what should change my partner likes calling them roses and thorns i like guess hmm. you can imagine why um, but various people have various names for this. And um, and the other good thing is, there is a rule of thumb in psychology, benefits before concerns. Yeah. I don't like that. I like people leaving, having spent a couple of minutes thinking about, what did I like about this meeting? What went well? What should be repeated? It leaves, everybody leaves on a slightly upward note. They're thinking more positively. They want to get back together again. But they have had an opportunity to vent. So if it really bothered somebody that, gee, you know, Bill really should have been here. They have an opportunity to download anything they should see differently, and they have an opportunity to reinforce the things that went well, and then they leave the room. So what was decided? What are the next steps? What communication points if people outside of this room are going to be curious about what happened? And if it's a longish meeting, say a a half-day or full-day or multi-day meeting, then we'll do Roses and Thorns, Benefits and Concerns. We wouldn't do it for a routine. I wouldn't recommend it for an everyday meeting. But it is good if the group meets infrequently, if it's a larger group or a longer meeting, to do that capture of. And, you know, somebody may have been sitting there freezing for the last four hours <laughs> and you had no idea they were sitting under an air vent. And they'll say, I've been freezing for four hours right? or, you know, I, I really have had trouble hearing. You really should speak louder. You know, it would have been nice to hear that at the time. Sure, but now I know. Next time I'm in a room with Mary, I got to sit her in the front, or I got to talk <laughs> louder,
0: and bring her a sweater.
2: Um, <laughs> I
0: guess, I guess,
2: part of this, Bob, is to and then use your learnings
0: for the next meeting. Make sure you go back and take that feedback and adjust.
2: And you'll say, you know, something. You'll notice you're all sitting in leather swivel chairs. The last meeting, there were a couple of comments about the chairs. We made sure that the hotel provided us with nicer seating this time. Yeah. So people say, well, gee, you know, I, I do remember they weren't comfortable. These, you know, they, these, these folks are trying better. Or if you can't do it, you'll say, look, we got some feedback last time that there wasn't enough time with the pre-read. We, we really apologize that we got it out on short notice. But you have to understand, finance really wanted these numbers right. We just couldn't get it out. But we know you were looking for more lead time. I'm sorry we weren't able to provide mm. it. But at least you're acknowledging that you're trying to do the best job you can and responding to the people's needs.
0: What would you say, Bob, as we wrap up? We have about a minute left. What would you say I should do? So just the average kind of employee out there that, that doesn't necessarily feel like they can run the meetings. But what can I do as, um, as, as an attendee of a meeting to help it along and help it work?
2: Well, I think as we're particularly if we're talking about these closure points, you know, you could say with five minutes to go, you know something? We've talked about a bunch of topics today. Could we just take a minute and recap where we are, what we've decided? Or, you know, I'm gonna walk back into the break room and, and I'm gonna have six people ask me what just happened. I know we don't want to talk about possibly canceling the, the company event. What what do you think we should all say? So people can from the table start to bring these closure points forward without saying, you know, we should do this every single meeting people, you know, if you do feel like maybe Betty over there didn't take away what I think she should have taken away. You can just say, gee, I think I'm not clear. Can we just take a minute and recap what we decided on this topic? And once the person restates it, Betty either will say nothing or say, well, we didn't agree to that. And now I know that I'm walking out without closure.
0: There you go. And anybody can offer, I mean, just ask those questions.
2: Absolutely. It's Bob, very safe, very
0: easy. We appreciate you. Keep up the great work in uh, in all you do. And everybody, go listen, go read the book, Who's in the Room? How Great Leaders Structure and Manage the Teams Around Them. You can find out more information, again, at Bob's site, strategicoffsites.com. Thanks again, Bob. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, come back to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead healthier meetings. Stick with us.
2: It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
0: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you are one uh, who hold who holds meetings and manages and facilitates these meetings, wow, you got to learn. We really struggle. I think a lot of us knowing how to hold a meeting. You might be really good at what you do when you think about it, an engineer might be an incredible, you know, person at understanding very detailed information and and a lot of uh, depth, but maybe start to identify what the meeting is about ahead of time. Figure out what is our goal and have an objective for the meeting. A lot of times we choose the time allotted for the meeting based on how long we can get the meeting room right so if i can get a meeting room for a half hour it's going to be a half hour meeting if i can get it for an hour it's going to be a one hour meeting is that not a backwards way of trying to decide how long you should hold a meeting wouldn't it make more sense to hold a meeting 37 minutes rather than one hour if you only have 37 minutes of content but you have the room for an hour You don't have to get every dollar's worth out of your conference rooms. So some of this is pre-planning and thinking and anticipating. Some of the best meetings, by the way, I've ever been to, they sent out some information for me to read and to prepare for before I went to the meeting. That way, I came to the meeting prepared. We will be covering these topics. We would love you to bring three ideas around these areas, and that allowed me to get my head wrapped around the meeting and actually up to speed so I was running, even sprinting ready to be engaged actively in the conversation. Pre-planning could help a lot as well. Uh, We talked a lot about, um, you know, in my day when I was a coach and a, a consultant with Corporate America about standing meetings. If you usually would take an hour to get through a discussion, one time I went to a company where they didn't have any chairs in their meeting rooms. There were no chairs. All the tables were raised. They were lifted so you, they were, you could comfortably stand and take notes, but there were no chairs. And amazingly, the meetings were so much shorter and so much more effective. Um, now, you can't necessarily do that, right, if you need to spend four hours in a meeting. But if you have a regular meeting that's uh, happening every day or regularly, it might be smart for you to plan on just letting it be a standing meeting. And I promise you it will go a lot faster. Having an agenda for the meeting is another important idea to make sure you take the plan and uh, institutionalize it. Whenever I would hold a meeting, I'm, I'm a horrible time manager. It's not one of my gifts. It's not one of my fortes. So I would always have the top uh, kind of micromanager in the room, be in charge of the schedule. And then I'd find a non-intrusive way that they could prompt me along. Uh, So not to be rude, not to be a jerk. They don't have to throw something at me, but they can just nod and say, next – or whatever whatever it takes. So make sure you do some pre-work and you're handing out the pre-work. Make sure you have a plan and that we have literally put out there, this is what we are going to try to accomplish in the meeting. Make sure you choose the time that's appropriate and needed. Also, make sure you have an agenda. In the plan, you should be asking other people that will be attending the meeting what should be on the agenda. That could all take place a, a, a week before the event, depending on the type of meeting. Now, for some meetings, you're thinking, I don't – this is overkill. I'm just going to wing it. Okay, fine. Then in the first minute of the meeting, prepare the agenda. What do we need to talk about really quick? What does everybody need to get out? And just go around the horn and let everybody tell you one or two things to put on the agenda and produce the agenda for the first five minutes of the meeting. Then hold the meeting and hold the meeting according to the agenda. Move it along, move it along, move it along. And then the last five minutes would be a healthy wrap-up as Bob Frisch just walked us through right what are the takeaways what are the you know what are the expectations again you don't have to do it but here's here's a critical point if you sit in a meeting all day long and it bores you and it's useless to you you i believe have an obligation to communicate that one way or another you have an obligation to give some feedback it doesn't you don't have to be a jerk about it you could just do it anonymously you could actually take it to somebody that you have influence over, that influences you, that you trust, and that – and I'd give them the feedback. Nobody wants to hold meetings that they think are a waste of time. And nobody wants to attend a meeting that is a waste of time. So don't just chalk it up to, yeah, my boss is just hold boring meetings. Because it, 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 in the end, you're going to be a boss someday. And somebody on your team is going to say, you're the boss that holds the boring meeting. Watch out, because the habit of your bosses become your habits. The best managers I ever saw, the best bosses I ever saw, they managed their meetings. They didn't waste the time of their employees, but they also they never feared away or were afraid of the meetings either. They didn't steer away from them. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you: basic rules and tools for a healthy uh, a healthy conversation. And then we of course we always want follow up, we always want feedback, and. Our feedback should be addressed in the next meeting as well. We'll talk about it, folks. Uh, Continue listening to us. More ideas, more information to help you lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show.